uh, for joining Hit Chat Chit Chat. Uh, I am here with a special guest, someone that I have followed along uh, on Twitter for a long time. Uh, I've been very interested in your X Factor for a long time. Uh, I've seen it kind of going through development stages. I've followed you on YouTube for a while. Uh, we have, and I apologize if I mispronounce your last name, please let me know. We have Ken Cherry Holmes. Just like it sounds, yep, it, it's perfect. Beautiful. Hello and welcome to Hit Chat Chit Chat. My name's Connor Reynolds. On today's podcast, we are actually going to be going over. This is just going to talk about hitting how much can go forward. I absolutely love the swing being compared to a catapult, scapular muscle. And what I'm going to look to try and do throughout the entire swing is build that tension. If you are a coach that is unwilling to ask why and the how of how to do something, and you are doing a disservice to your players, my goal is to try and make every single kid a King Griffey. Strider is here. The reason I like the cricket bat is it's flat. Thank you for the sub, my guy, I really appreciate it. What else do we got for the folks? There we go. We should be live. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind kind of going through a little uh, intro bio about who you are, uh, kind of what you do uh, and where you're located. Yeah, I'm in Carlsbad, California. I was in Seattle. I'm from Santa Monica, California. I was in Seattle as a hitting trainer from 1998 until 2018. So I spent 20 years, did the bulk of my training there. Um, Let's see, I uh, started out as an associate scout with the Tampa Bay Rays in 2003. Um, I got that job through a player who I had trained with the Rays um, from 98 through to the end of his career. And uh, I'm, primarily I didn't want to scout, so I took an associate scout job. And the first thing I did, um, I think my second year with them, so it took me a year to do this, was I went out and found a player who really could not hit at all. His name is Matt Fields. He was a 285-pound fresh or junior in high school, batted 230, and had zero home runs. He's six foot five, just a monster of a guy. Found him in a batting cage, and he actually came into my batting cages and was hitting off the machines. And um, he had the fastest, most powerful hands I'd ever seen in my life. And so I walked up to him, and I said, so you've uh you you don't hit many home runs do you and he said you know he's big big kind of shy guy he's nope and i said well you will and what i did was i offered him i said look i'll work for you with you for free all you have to do is dedicate yourself and show up and i said i guarantee i'll get you drafted next year and he said oh you know okay and he showed up and he ended up leading um seattle metro it's called kinko um, for those of you who are familiar with the Seattle baseball high school system, he was, the, he was the leading batting average and home run hitter in the state of Washington in 2000 and I believe it was four. Oh, wow. Um, from there, uh, he showed up to our uh, pre-draft workouts we used to run. And um, I actually had him matched up uh, hitting back-to-back -back with uh, Matt Tuyasasopo, because he was like the biggest star of, of this, the Seattle area at that time. And, and Matt was raking. He was, you know, he was a good hitter. And uh, Matt Tuyasasopo was raking, and he was a good hitter is what I, was, uh, I meant to say. Then Big Matt comes up, and he's, you know, with his jersey just stretched to the max. He was huge, and he just started dropping home runs that the other guys that were following him, their jaws just dropped. 
you know, in, in first, you know, you're at the showcase and you're feeling really good about yourself. And then in comes this giant, like pretty soft fat kid, I guess I would say. And, um, and he, and, and, you know, they're not thinking much of this guy. He doesn't look like a ball player. And then he just, just starts dropping incredible home runs. Oh, wow. So end of the, end of the day comes along and, um, you know, everyone, our national cross checker, who was um, uh, R.J. Harrison, he, uh, and, and all the other scouts that are there, my area supervisor, who just recently passed, Paul Kirsch, um, they all said, well, yeah, that, he's got an 80 tool for power, no doubt about it, but I'll, we'll draft him, but I'm not, I'm not going to sign that body. I'm not putting my name on that body. And I said, don't worry about it. What I had done was, aside from train him, I also did a lot of research on his eating habits. I did a lot of research on his weight fluctuations. I had long conversations with his mom about this. And I said, don't worry about it. I set him up with a nutritionist. I set him up with a trainer and just worked him to death. And what happened was this was back in 2004, as I said, and what they were doing back then was draft and follow. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Today, today you get drafted. They have to sign you within a certain a small window. I think by August eighth or something like that. And um, back then, you had a full year, full calendar year, just before the next draft to sign your player. So what they would do is they'd often have these guys go to JCs. Um, you couldn't go to a D one because then they're locked and they're they're stuck until their junior season or when they're I think twenty, um, something like that. I forget the rule on that. But in any case, um, he went to a JC. And he led the JUCO in home runs and just mashed. And what happened was he incredibly transformed from this giant guy. And this had a lot to do with his subsequent personality changes um, or his, his personality of how he viewed himself is, is how I should phrase that. Um, he went from this big, massive, soft, doughy guy to an absolutely ripped six foot five at, at, at the it, his playing weight was about 245, but at this time he got down to 235 of just like washboard with this weird looking marsupial pouch because of all the extra skin from being 285 pounds. Um, but he was completely ripped giant. And, uh, and, and RJ even commented about Matt um, after several years in the organization that he had only seen one guy with more power in his entire life, and that, and that was Josh Hamilton. Oh, wow. Um, Matt. Yeah, and so we end up, uh, well, lengthening the story a bit. In junior college, I kept telling my, my area supervisor, I said, you've got to sign him now. Um, I said, look, his coach is, is um, interfering, which, you know, when you do this, you actually could lose your job as a coach forever. But he was telling Matt to don't sign, stay another year, you'll get drafted in a lower round and make more money. And I said, look, he's he's trying to convince him to not sign with us. You've got to sign him. And so he dragged his feet and dragged his feet and dragged his feet. End of the season comes along and he goes and sees Matt play a game. He calls me from the field and goes, oh my God, I dropped the ball. I am so sorry. I had no idea it was possible for somebody to get that built that fast. And I said, look, I told you all along. I told you when this was happening that you've got to sign him. He's ready to play. And so he ended up playing about I think 13 years in professional ball, um, won a double A home run derby, um, was an all-star uh, in, in one season in 2000. And I believe it was 14. He hit 32 home runs and 10 of those were measured over 500 feet. 
There's not a guy in, in professional baseball right now, and there's no big leaguers that are hitting the ball 500. This guy had unbelievable power. Oh, wow. And you can look all this up. I have all the videos because I get sent everything from him. Um, all my players send me video when they're on the road or when they're off playing and I'm home. But yeah, so that's that's how things started with me in my um, my professional career. I first found a guy who was a minor leaguer. Um, he was in he was in A ball at the time, and trained him through his big league career. From there, I said, okay, now I've trained a guy who was a professional player, and I want to create one for you. And so what I had told Tampa at that time was, I go, look, this is what I want to do. I don't want to scout. I don't want to go out and waste my time looking at guys that you already know are good and just giving you a report that everybody else is reporting. I want to do it the old school way, which is find a guy and create him. Kind of like there's a great book called um, Dollar Sign on the Muscle that talks about old scouting. It's a terrific book. If you could find it, it was out of print and really expensive, and now it's back in print. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a fun read, and it talks all about old scouting of taking a train and going into you know the cornfields and finding a guy and turning him into a player and bringing him into the Cubs or the St. Louis Browns organizations and things like that. So that's essentially what I wanted to do. And they said, that's great. That, you know, that, that'd be fantastic. Um, and so I got a few more players from them to train, but you know, I didn't, it, it didn't, didn't work out the way I thought it would or should have. You know, they kind of just, maybe they thought it was an anomaly or maybe they just didn't pay any mind to it. I don't know. So the next thing I did was I found a big league guy who was a perennial 300 hitter that got released because he went from being a perennial 300 hitter to a 208 hitter. And he was being paid $7 million a year to stay home. Um, they essentially said, we'd rather open a roster spot that, than have you on our roster, so we'll pay you to stay home. And like most professional baseball players that I know, he wasn't ending his career on his terms, therefore he wanted to play. So I ended up taking him and um, I guaranteed that he would hit 285 the first year I worked with him, 300 the second year I worked with him. Um, based on the first year, as you know, as a trainer, um, I worked from the ground up. And so the first thing I had to do was work with his feet. And he had some very serious, he had the yips, he had a tap, um, he had a lot of problems with his lower body that was affecting his timing. So you have a mechanic that is a mechanic, but it's really timing related mechanics. So I smoothed out his lower body and I said, next year I'll be able to work with his hands. We well, ended up getting signed. He hit uh, 281. He broke his, his hand sliding into second in, uh, in Houston one game. Um, and so, he, but he ended up hitting 281, which is pretty close to my prediction. Year two, I got to work with his hands and really start to work on his extension and things like that. And he hit 319. And so here I'm thinking, okay, not only did I take a guy who was released and prove that I can fix players that are broken, even, even players that were currently playing, and, um, and then I can predict what they would hit. And I thought, well, the, okay, who does that? And so I thought for sure my career was going to skyrocket. Well, we're talking about 2006, 2005 and six when I was working with this guy. And, uh, and there wasn't a Twitter, there wasn't social media that, that really could, um, sort of launch me like a, a teacher man sort of thing. So, you know, I went totally unnoticed. I was without a doubt the busiest hitting instructor in the state of Washington, absolutely in Seattle. Um, I, uh, I had a full schedule with a waiting list of, you know, roughly 30 people all the time year round. So I was, I was in high, high, high demand. I trained all the best players in the state, Michael Conforto, Dylan Davis, all of these guys had an amazing 2011 class. Um, and uh, 
outside of, of my little you know pod in, in Seattle, I didn't exist. And so uh, I, I, I was pretty bummed once I got on Twitter. I'm not a terribly social person. Um, I pretty much keep to myself. I don't, I don't keep a lot of friends. I don't like. I don't really like talking all that much. So um, I, I realized, as far as trying to propel my business, my startup at the time, um, which is X Factor, which we'll talk about um, shortly. Uh, I got onto Twitter, and it was a very interesting world. It was a really interesting introduction. Um, and so, you know, I. I of course, like everyone, I happened upon Teacher Man at some point, and he and I had some pretty epic fights. Um, you know, the, the problem I have with Teacher Man or, or any instructor is I will never deny that whatever they're teaching works, whether or not it is the best method, um, that's, that's left for discussion, or what I find problematic most often, because I won't tell these guys, you know, your swing doesn't work. What I will tell them is the way you're portraying another swing, the narrative that you're creating for another swing, say a rotational swing, is absolutely incorrect. So you're making your your style look good by creating a false narrative for another style. You know, talking about striding and how striding um, with a rotational type swing moves weight when you stride. And that's absolutely false. It's it you move weight if you change the the bend in in knees. Okay, so our our knees basically work like shock absorbers. And so if I had a more defined bend in my back leg and a less defined bend in my front leg, I have more weight back than forward, right? If I take a stride and I don't change those ratios at all, if the bends remain exactly the same, and you can use force plates to prove this to yourself. You won't be moving weight. You'll be spreading out the size of your base to accommodate a weight shift, but you're not moving weight at all. So you can actually stride pretty aggressively. And because of this, this fear of moving weight without understanding how weight moves, a lot of hitters land very, very softly. They're, they're in, a, in a rather defensive and timid position because they're kind of tippy-toed landing because they're trying not to move their weight. They're landing on rice paper or, or you know, ice or glass, whatever the, the cue is that, that coaches use. Um, and I'm saying, no, you can actually, I actually prefer hitters that have a really aggressive stride as long as they're not moving any weight by changing bends. I love because what that tells me is this hitter looks like someone who's about to make an open field tackle. They're aggressive. And so I really prefer that type of stride. That said, I have lots and lots and lots of hitters that were toe landers and, and I couldn't change them. And that's okay because what I would look at was, does this affect their ability to hit the ball? Is, is it aesthetically perfect in my opinion? No. Does it affect their ability to hit? Absolutely not. It is not a prohibitor, therefore I just leave it alone. Nelson Cruz is a great example of that. I just put a video up in, of, of him the other day, which was sort of a sequential of him and how his stride mechanics work to get to launch. And Nelson Cruz lands on his toe, right? And, and I think we can all agree that Nelson Cruz is a pretty darn good hitter. So, so um, you really want to work within the, the comfort zones of the hitter. And when you see something that may be anomalous or something that might not work the way you, you think it would be most efficient, you look at how it affects the hitter and if it affects the hitter. Does this prevent him from being able to hit the ball? If yes, then you need to start making some changes and some little nuancing there. If it doesn't, you just say, okay, that's his thing. And what happens is if you have a little bit of a, a different 
move or nuance to your swing. And this happens all the time in professional baseball. And then you end up being regarded as one of the best of the best hitter in baseball. Every hitting coach out there says, he does that different. See, that's why he's the better hitter. And I'll say, no, he does, he does that differently. And he's a great hitter in spite of that. Right. And so that's that's sort of sort of my introduction to Twitter was getting into fights over things like that and trying to trying to open people's minds by, you know, unfortunately, getting into these gruesome arguments. I'm a pretty articulate and uh, I don't know, I'd like to think I'm pretty smart. And so I, I, I do very well in my arguments. And when people are vicious towards me, I unfortunately became twice as vicious back. Um, I ended up losing some followers. I ended up, interestingly enough, the feeds in which I was getting into these little brutal arguments where I was really like beating on someone um, tended to get the most views. I would get, I would look at my analytics and I'd get the most hits. And I started like assessing that and saying, but is that who you want to be? But I thought, you know, as far as trying to perpetuate my startup, the important thing is, you know, the, the, the old adage in advertising is, no press is bad press. So if I was getting the views, I was okay with it. But it really came down to a point where I said, you know, that's not who I want to be. I, I really don't want to get in these arguments. And so I ended up blocking Google. Teacher Man actually blocked me first because he just couldn't ever win an argument with me. Um, and so he ended up blocking me. I blocked him and all of his acolytes. And, uh, and, and so I've tried to keep it uh, as as conflict-free as possible, my experience on Twitter now, and try to be as positive as possible. And sometimes, unfortunately, um, as I'm sure you know, um, because text is flat and, and has no inflection, people misrepresent or misunderstand what you're saying because they're viewing whatever lens they're viewing through at that moment is how they read it, you know? And so they're hearing this really aggressive response, and I'm over here going, you know, I'm not aggressive at all. My heart rate hasn't elevated in the slightest bit. I'm fine. So um, uh, that, that's, that's it on that. I'll let you ask another question if you want to. <laughs> no, I love it. And just to kind of bring around, I, I kind of was put into that situation, I guess, of trying to decide, you know, do I want to keep interacting? I had my run-ins with like Jeff Fry and stuff like that of just my biggest thing is, and we talked about it in our DMs, is I just think the, the miss is – people's perspective it, people i think struggle being able to articulate and explain their perspective and exactly what you said people are reading the tweet the text whatever it is through their lens through what they right. are feeling through what they're seeing the situation that they are in not how you are wanting to present it and if, if you are a person that struggles being able to present that information in a way to allow for that conversation to continue with someone that is struggling a little bit to understand that it just makes things difficult and that was my biggest thing that i've been trying to do with these some of these ex-pros and stuff i actually got off the phone with somebody today that was like hey you know if i could give you any advice you know stay away from the ex-pro guys some of them just you know they they want to have a fight just have a fight and it took me a while to kind of understand that and like you said the those were your interactions that related the most the best analytics the most clicks the most uh drive and everything like that and it some people uh like uh the ones on twitter jeff ryan stuff you know that's how they make their money he's trying to sell um him going to places to speak he's trying to sell you know his business 
And so it's just one of those where that's why he's doing it. He doesn't offer a solution. He just causes more issues. Okay, so I have a comment on that one for you. I love it. I've known quite a few ex-big league guys and, you know, guys that were when I knew them playing big league baseball and then had retired. Of all those guys, I know two that retired on their own terms. One was John Olerud. The other was Jay Buhner. Both of those guys retired and could not care less to ever play baseball again. They're the only two. And so a lot of the ex-pros that we're talking about, they, they don't understand or don't know their place in the world anymore because they're not big league players. They, they, their identity has now been shifted and now they're citizens. And so there's a lot of defensiveness and there's a lot of, but you don't understand because you didn't play. And that doesn't mean, you know, I, 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 don't, I didn't have to play at the big league level to understand the big league level. Um, especially the more you work with other big league guys, um, then you you kind of prove out, well, yeah, I, I, I have the same sort of experience. I don't know what, it's, what it feels like to stand in the box against Pedro Martinez. No. But that doesn't mean that I can't analyze what's going on in that. And that doesn't know, mean that I can't come up with a solution to, to improve your performance against a guy like that. Um, but yeah, the, the the biggest issue is is they they are at a total loss of identity, and so they they come on and they they're yeah. But I was a big league player, and sadly enough, oftentimes with big league guys, when they do end up retiring, many of their their close connections, if they're still playing ball, they, they sever their relationships. They don't have time for outside people, and then you know then they the the players get their feelings hurt and you know there's all of that but yeah yeah it's an unfortunate kind of like little circle you know what i mean where the guys that it's like coming back from war yeah it's like coming back from war you know it's it's like i'm i was a soldier but now i'm a citizen what am i supposed to do with myself who am i um and so that's a lot of it why why, uh, i think a lot of the ex-big league guys are pretty condescending and and jeff and i are friends um, Jeff Ryan and I are friends. However, I don't follow him any any longer um, because of a lot of the negativity. I don't agree with most of it, and, and he's known that, and I've made that clear even when we were interacting on Twitter. I said, you know, there's a lot of things that I disagree with um, that Jeff says and does. I don't really like at all um, his random choosing of, of drills particularly because you don't you know drills look weird and you might do something specifically because somebody has this this flaw and you're trying things out and you know a lot of the shigan guys and many of them interestingly enough aren't even baseball people you know some of the guys at the top of it it's like jeff fry and and uh, bob file or ex big league guys and then you've got the not guy eddie who is like a softball player and a musician and then you've got uh, tony wench who uh, his best days i think he was like 12 and 11 or something like that and he always talks about those not baseball people yet they some of those guys tony particularly has such an incredibly strong opinion of what's right and what's wrong and i'm saying based on what you know based on what experience are you are you saying this and so you know i guess it's similar to are you familiar with the ut guy Ron from YouTube. Okay, well, he is a close friend of uh, Teacher Man and a, and a defender of Teacher Man. And 
he's a guy who didn't play ball. It's very, very clear based on his body type and his movements and things like that. He's not an athlete. He created some kind of T on a string that has a magnet that holds the ball, and uh, that's that's his sort of uh, credibility in baseball. But the second credibility is that he is closely, closely attached to the HLP and teacher man kind of philosophy. And he's a guy who, who feels defended by being with a guy that's that mean as teacher man, a guy who, who you know, you're aligning yourself with people who can defend you when, when you, you know, if I can be the friend with the bully, fantastic. Then, then I'm suddenly a bully without being a bully because I'm protected by this. So that, I, I found that there was a lot of similarity with some of the, the Shigan guys. And, um, and, and I just, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about the, the charlatans out there. It's another thing to start picking at drills and things like that. Um, some of the products out there or some of the drills, I'll even explain to them that, well, this drill actually has worth. And this is what they're trying to do with that drill. I know it looks funny, but... But more, it was a, a, more and more it snowballed into it, an opportunity to ridicule and, and therefore, you know, elevate my stature, um, the, the Shigun stature. And I just, I couldn't be a part of that. And so even though I really like Jeff very much, and I think he's a terrific guy and probably was an amazing teammate, um, such, a, such a cheerleader. Some of the guys that I've trained did play with Jeff and said the same thing that I said was, yes, he was a fantastic dugout guy. He was terrific. That's beautiful, and I think it comes down to, like you, we've talked about, is just that perspective. I, I think that they just get caught in that, you know, whether it was how they did it or who they went, came up with did it, whatever it is. We talked about it in the gym. There's just some players that don't get that same feel or can't replicate the same reel as they were with the focuses and cues that they were having. And so, like you said, sometimes with the player's inefficiency of movement or their perspective on uh, their timing or whatever it is, we have to do uh. weird drills just so that way they can feel, understand, and see Oh, that's what exactly. it's supposed to be like. And oh, I but if I isolate my hands, then I can still hit the ball. I get it. And then you kind of integrate that into uh, all the other movement patterns. Yeah. One of my one of my favorite drills to isolate the hands. Uh, I actually <laughs> I couldn't find a harness that had a little uh, loop, kind of like right at the shoulder. I kept mm -hmm. looking. I was looking at rock climbing wall like harnesses. I was looking at everything. And the only thing that kept coming up that had a little loop right next to the chest was actually a sex harness uh, <laughs> that they would use. And so, I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, don't tell any of my players what it is. But what, actually, yeah, what, what drawer was that in? <laughs> <laughs> and so pull that out. Got a little deadlifting uh, strap for uh, that you wrap around the bar. That has a little loop right there. I got a band. I'm able to connect it. And it's just for my guys that struggle with kind of relaxing those hands and letting them work uh, uh, with the body a little bit. It's that feeling. It's a super weird, wild thing if you're just tuning in to kind of see what's going on. But if you're in an understanding of the process and the why and the how of what we're doing it, it makes sense. And it's just I don't think right. that those two questions are asked too much from the Shigon movement. And that was mostly what I was kind of reaching out to them to try and say like, Hey, like 
there's value in this. Like it may not work for you. It may not have worked for your son or whatever, but for this kid, it worked. And if it works for one kid, I'm, I'm, I think it's worth it. I really do. If it works for one kid. Here, here's something for you on that. Um, you know, I was never a constraints guy, but when we talk about the difference between, you know, how hitters learn and, and taking different approaches to teaching hitters and things like that, what I think a lot of us aren't realizing is that the instructor themselves are very different and very individual. And for, let's say for you, constraints were something that was a go-to that you said, okay, if I use this, then I can get this result. And I absolutely believe you can. For me, I would go towards more Eastern philosophy type things. If I wanted hands to relax, then I go in more into meditative breathing, breathing practices and things like that. Um, really working on, on, you know, like relaxing mind, relaxing body sort of stuff like that. It's not to say that one is more effective than the other. We'll both probably arrive at the same uh, result, but the difference is, is that our approaches, just like our hitters, are probably very different. I couldn't teach you to be me and you couldn't teach you to be or teach me to be you, you know, and, that, and that's something that we really need to also pay attention to is say, you know, not so much uh, attack the approach because it's different because those same guys will tell you that everybody's swing is different, right? The same guys that are telling you that, that, well, that's a stupid drill. They'll say, well, every hitter's different and they respond differently. You say, yeah, and every instructor's different. Did that occur to you? And what works for us and what, how we convey our ideas may be different than the way you convey your ideas. Doesn't mean that we won't all arrive at the same place. It's one of those things that I think the drive of the analytics and how many clicks you get I think that kind of weighs out a little bit more uh, than having that conversation, asking that question. Sure. Like, sure. If they were to say, hey, you know what? I actually understand why. Then that would be the end of the comment. <laughs> there would be no more mentions right, or exactly. notifications going on. You have to keep driving it. But yeah, I would that's really, bad to end the conversation. <laughs> I would really like to kind of talk a little bit more, and this might tie into the X factor that you're talking about. A big thing for me is I really like asking and understanding how you were going about and developing and working with players. The atmosphere that you guys were creating, uh, a big thing that I ask is how is failure involved in your training when you are working with guys? Uh, and just a couple of those quite the atmosphere and stuff like that, just to learn a little bit more about it. And if X factor was involved in that, I would love to talk, uh, the actual device, if that was involved, I would love for you to also then run into that as well. It, it, it's involved in that the reason why I named the, the system, the X factor is being able to hit at the big league level, being able to time down pitches under the most extreme of conditions, 35,000 fans, a paycheck, a guy who wants to take your position and your paycheck away from you, um, playing against the best of the best, the fastest of the fast, all of these conditions that create this amazing stress, there is absolutely no way to test that except for putting somebody in that position. And, and we, we see this in the NFL draft where you'll see a, a Division one player who is exceptional, Ryan Leaf. And um, and then when they get to the NFL, they can't perform. Even though he had the size, even though he had the prototypical body, even though he had success at the level just below, you know, the highest level just below NFL, he was incredibly successful. Therefore, he should succeed at the NFL. And, and he doesn't. Well, 
you know, we draft over a thousand players a year, maybe maybe a little less now that we've shrunk in the draft, but let's just say we draft a thousand players a year. Each and every one of those players, every guy that I ever was was supposed to of this is what your job description is, is you are not here to fill a minor league roster. You are here to look for guys who have MLB cap. have the capability of being a big league player. They have the tools to be a big league player. Now, the X factor is whether or not those tools will play under these conditions that we can't test you in until you get there. So it's just sort of that educated guess, and that's why, you know, a, a very small percentage of those guys actually do make it to the big leagues. And so that's why I called it the X factor, and it has everything to do with timing. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, as you know, as as a coach, <clears throat> when you're hitting with a guy and he has timing issues, even if you're doing like kind of front toss work where it's fairly easy and they might, you know, for me, I, I would say if you can't hit four out of five pitches exactly the way you should hit them or they should fly exactly the way is, is most optimal when I'm not trying to get you out. If you can't do four out of five, I'm okay with a mistake. But if you can't do four out of five, you're going to struggle mightily against the guy who's trying to get you out. And so you need to be able to control the things that are easiest for you. And so once you prove that, then you can kind of step on and say, okay, now I'm going to try to get you out. And now let's work on those percentages. So um, that, 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 I'm not really sure where I was going on that one. Um, what was the, what was the no overall worries. question? No worries. What was, when you were training and working with guys, uh, what's the atmosphere that you uh, were trying to build and instill? Uh, what is the, the role of failure in your training? And if at the time X factor was created at the time that you were working with guys, how did you use that and involve that in your training? Got it. Um, failure is, is usually something that, or the fear of failure is what usually results in another failure, right? And so the atmosphere that you create for your players is that this is a laboratory. This is a place where you experiment. This is a place where you test the boundaries of what you can do and then what goes beyond what you can do. And you say, okay, well, this is too much. But the only way to find out what is too much is to arrive at too much because then you can work backwards. But working slowly, incrementally towards that isn't great. So I remember what I was going to say. Um, when you're working with a player and you find that they're not, you know, hitting very well, you'll find that their mechanics get very, very tight and stiff and, and kind of contrived. You know, they're just they're trying to hit the ball. And then they kind of get the timing groove. And as soon as they get a timing groove, all of a sudden you see their swing free up. And they start hitting harder and harder because what we do once we're not confounded any longer is that we try to work at our most optimal, right? And so... Um, that's, that's very much the atmosphere that I create for players is that you are, if you fall down because you swung too hard, I'll be there to pick you up. Don't be afraid to fall down. Right. And so then they start to discover this kind of level of capability and they say, wow, I hit the ball 500 times harder than I used to simply because I was trying to hit it harder. And I said, well, there you go. But you were, you were refraining that you were, you were saying, um, well, I've got to stay controlled. And I said, well, how do you know what the, what the maximum of that is? You know, don't be controlled, be totally relaxed and loose, be reactive. And you'll find out that, you know, there are things that I can't explain to you and 
no doctor could explain it to me, and I've done plenty of research on this matter, is I can't tell you how a basketball player can practice a 16-foot jump shot. You could put an X on the ground and say, here's 16 feet from the hoop, and they could practice it, and they can get great at it. And then in a game, they won't land on that X. They'll land around that X. But their brain is able to say, a couple extra foot pounds on this, this push will put the ball into that hoop. Right, so you, you you would be able to make baskets within a radius of that practiced area, right? I can't explain hand-eye that way. I can't explain how all I do is see an object, reach for it, grab it, right? There, there's nothing contrived. I didn't think about doing that. I didn't think about the mechanic of doing that. And so as far as my ability to actually hit the ball, as long as I'm not prohibiting my body from being able to hit the ball, tightening and doing things that my brain wouldn't organize for me, as long as I have really outstanding timing skills, I will hit the ball. Now, if I want to have more power, then I might want to distribute weight differently or use that movement of weight differently. But the fact is, is that I'll be able to hit the ball. Um, excuse my, my analogy, but if, if, if I could time a guy down, you could stick the bat in your butt and hit the ball, right? Just so long as you could get it around fast enough. If your timing was good. Running to first, I can't help you with that. But... Um, <laughs> Right, you would hit the ball. Would you hit it efficiently? No, but okay, well, that's a good starting point to say, okay, I am hitting the ball. My timing is not confounded anymore, and so therefore. So that was that was the basis of the X Factor. Um, and, and when that happened was in the year, I believe it was 2000. It was 2000 or 2001. I'm a bit, bit hazy on it. Um, I was building one of, one of the batting cages that I owned, <clears throat> and I was doing, you know, all the work. I was, I was, using a, a roto hammer and digging holes until my hands bled in the ground to put posts in, hanging nets. And what I had done was I was putting up tarps in between my cages so that if I was in a cage with a guy here, he wasn't distracted by a guy who's in this cage over here. You know, kids, you know, don't have the greatest attention spans and they get distracted. And so for the, for the younger guys, I would, I would put up these tarps. So you had like a private tunnel. Um, I, you know, you're working, I was working, you know, 17 hour days doing lessons and building a cage all at the same time. So I, the one cage that I'd finished, I'd, I'd be running lessons and then that lesson would go home and then I would start building again and start hanging nets and things like that. I had a pitching machine set up and I had a feeder and it was set, you know, I had it maxed out. It was probably at 90 or whatever it would, could possibly throw. It was an old Judd's machine. So I think it was about 90 it was topping out at. And I just wanted to distract myself and do something fun instead of work. And so I was, I take some swings. And this one night, I swear to you, I could not find my timing for the life of me. And I stepped out and I was taking a breath and kind of frustrated with myself and said, what is going on? I'm watching balls go by. And then it was pure, I don't know, luck or I don't know what you call it. Just, just synchro destiny. One of my tarps was lying on the ground that I hadn't hung yet, and it was lying in a spot that was perfect for my timing. When the ball crossed it, I went, oh my God, I wasn't swinging when the ball got to that edge of the tarp. So then I stepped back in, and I used my peripheral, I'm picking up the ball and the tarp at the same time, and I just start raking again. And I, from, from swing, 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 and miss, 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 went rake, 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 rake. And I said, oh my God, it's all about realizing your measurements. And so that's what originally brought on the X factor. I said, if you know when to swing and if you had a reference point to adjust off of, um, then you can 
find your timing or perfect your timing. But most of us, you know, and it was always frustrating to me, and I didn't have a solution at the time, you know, early in my career where I would be sitting next to a coach or, or a dad or whomever, and they would be telling their kid, uh, swing sooner, swing later. And I'm thinking, swing sooner, swing later than when? They don't know when they swung, how do they know what's earlier, right? And so now I've got this epiphany that says, oh, but there's a measurement to this. At X distance, if I swing, I'll hit the ball. So if I was hitting middle pitches and I was hitting middle pitches off my back foot now, I realize I'm two feet late. So if I was swinging at 15 feet, it meant that I had to swing at 17 feet. And we all have a pretty fair reference of distance, right? If I walked up with a baseball to any hitter, including you, if I walked up to you and I said, tell me to stop when I'm two feet away, I could walk up and you and I could measure it and you, you would be incredibly close to two feet. Or if I said three feet or if I said five feet, because we use these types of, of references. It's how you train a sniper where you say, think in terms of football fields because it's a familiar reference. And so when you're looking at an object, you say, well, that's two football fields away, which would be the equivalent of 600 feet. Right. And so we use these these familiar uh, references in order to judge distance. So that's how I came up with the idea for X Factor. And I also came up with a way now to train hitters from a short distance, from doing front toss. I would intuitively throw at a speed that I knew where the ball would be in relation to their swing when they needed to swing at it. Okay, so what I did was I would say when the ball is over the middle and we have, we have multiple contact points based on our arc of our swing. And so I'd say... When the ball's over the middle, begin your swing when it feels like it's two feet away from your front foot, which is the closest part of your body. We have, we have what's called a, a universal gravitation to objects. Anything within our, our field, we can actually feel them. We have this kind of, you know, when somebody gets close to you and you get uncomfortable because you don't like them, well, they're not actually in your space, but they're so close to your space because we can actually feel these things. And so that's one of the things that we use for depth perception. So I would say, okay, over the middle, swing when the ball is two feet away. Inside, the contact point for inside is one foot in front of you. So I would say, swing when the ball is inside at three feet. And then it would make contact and you would pull it. You'd hit the two feet, go up the middle. And then I'd say, when the ball feels as though it's touching your foot on an outside pitch, begin swinging and you'll hit the ball to the right field. And so I'd have parents that would come in and say, you know, my kid can't do anything but hit the ball to right field, or, he, you know, all he does is pull the ball. And I said, that's easy. I'll take care of that in two seconds at the end of this lesson. But right now we're just going to talk about his mechanics. And so I was able to get a guy to hit the ball to all fields that could never hit a ball to all fields simply by giving them cues of measurements based on, you know, I would be throwing at a speed that would work for this. Um, all they had to do was take their swing, and I, and I intuitively figured out how hard I'd have to throw the ball and what that measurement point was. And I always kept it simple so that everybody got the same cue, which was three, two, zero. Um, and then I, I was thinking, and this was 2000, um, and I was thinking to myself, God, if there was a way where I could capture swings, because we already have radars, so I already know how I can capture pitches, but if I could capture a swing, so I knew the exact time it took, which would include their, their reaction time or any little extra hitch that their hands made backwards after decision. If I could capture that, then I could perfect anybody's timing. And fast forward to, I was training hitters that method that I told you, the 320 for a very, very long time and got 
everybody to understand contact points that way. Impossible to extrapolate. I can't go out and now throw from 60 feet away and throw hard and have them use 320 because while the contact point remains the same, the attack distance is different and I can't intuitively work that one out. So I would be able to tell the hitter when I threw the pitch and if he was two feet late, I'd say, you need to swing two feet earlier than the last one, but I don't know where you started your swing. That's for you to figure out. So it, it was helpful to a certain degree. Um, once we fast forward to say 2000 and I think it was about 16 where I discovered the Zep device. And I said, oh my God, we can capture swings now. Now I've got it. So, cause I'd written an algorithm for all of this. Um, Back in 2000, I wrote it down that night that I had the epiphany. I wrote the entire algorithm out. And um, and then I found there was a problem with all of the knob devices, which was they are are sensitive to a, a particular movement or a threshold of movement. And so obviously you don't want to capture somebody who is in the back wag, you know, wagging or at their load. You want to capture their swing. Well, the problem is some guys leak have a slow movement here, or some guys have an extra hitch, they think they've loaded, and then they re-hitch. Well, that accounts for an incredible amount of time. I mean, in, in terms of swings, when you talk about an average swing is 150 milliseconds, the mechanical aspect of it, you've added this delay, which is reaction time, which an average reaction time is between 200 and 250 milliseconds. Pro guys are probably closer to about 180 milliseconds. Um, with anticipation and 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 uh, and they're elite athletes, and so they have a better reaction ability than most of us. Um, so you're looking at at uh, 180 milliseconds added onto your 150 millisecond swing already. Then you add a hitch, and that hitch sometimes takes 100 milliseconds. So now or more. And so now you've added on from you've gone from having a 350 millisecond overall swing now having a 450 overall swing and the pitch only took 411 milliseconds to get there you have no shot 